the various volumes that make up the Theravada Pali Canon, all of the, the different writings in Theravada Buddhism, <clears throat> are collectively known as the Tipitaka, which means the three baskets. And this includes the, the Sutta Pitaka, which is the basket or collection of all of the discourses that are either attributed to the Buddha or a few of his closest disciples. And the Vinaya Pitaka is the collection of texts that concern the rules of conduct for monks and nuns. And the third one is the Abhidhamma Pitaka, which is the collection of the texts that make up the Buddhist psychology, which is this really detailed analysis of how mental and physical processes function and interrelate. And within the collection of the suttas, the fifth division is called the Kudaka Nikaya, Nikaya meaning collection. There's the Majima, the middle length collection, the Diga Nikaya. And the fifth one is the Kudaka Nikaya, means collection of little texts. And within that, the ninth book is the Terigata. And the word Teri comes from the same root as Tara, as in Theravada Buddhism, which is the way of the elders. Theravada means way of the elders. Teri is specifically the feminine uh, version of that word. So Teri uh, meaning a female elder and gata means poem or verse or song. So terigata is the songs or poems of the female elders, of the women elders. <clears throat> and it's a collection of 73 poems in which the early nuns recount their, their struggles and realizations along the path of awakening. And like most of the Pali Canon, it was preserved as an oral tradition for several hundred years before it was ever written down. I'm always amazed when I think of that, that this vast body was memorized by people and passed on for generations. And uh, somehow it came down to us through those kinds of efforts over the years. It's said that even today in some Buddhist countries, there are people who have memorized huge portions. I've heard of people in Burma who are said to have memorized the entire Tipitaka. Um, I don't know if it's true, but I, you know, you see these tiny little novices who are repeating these things starting at a very young age when it's easy to memorize. And I believe it very well could be true that there are people who have, certainly I know Sayadaws who you ask them a question and they know it from the suttas. So there's not a lot of um, information about the lives of these early women, but there is some. Uh, some of it's found within some of the suttas and within the stories associated with the Vinaya collection and from some of the commentaries. So we have some stories to go with the poems in some cases. And I, I love these poems. There, there's a, a simplicity and honesty there and a quality of really being from the heart that I really love. And even though the stories of their lives are somewhat limited, they give us a glimpse into what it was like at that time and make it more real and human. It can seem kind of mythical. Some of the stories seem to be a bit formulaic but I think they really can connect us to this lineage that we're part of 
you know, were practicing the same teachings, doing the same practices that they were doing. And this is really true, clear when we, when we read the poems, we can see that they were seeing the same kinds of things. And so they can be a really inspiring reminder of our own potential as we follow in their footsteps. I was talking to Carol uh, a few days ago. We both have plans for travel to Burma in the winter, and it's become somewhat of an annual pilgrimage um, for both of us in different ways. But I was noticing when I pictured Burma, when I, my images that come into my mind almost always include a vision of the nuns there. They're such a part of the landscape there, maybe partly because the clothing they wear stands out. They wear kind of pink or peach colors, which sounds maybe not so dignified, but in that context, it, it is. Uh, it's not the same kind of connotation we might have with those colors here. And they've always been, the nuns in, in Asia have always been a real source of inspiration to me. They seem to live with such grace and dignity and devotion and, and real sincerity that I've always found very inspiring. And it's not that easy for them. In the Theravada tradition, the bhikkhuni, bhikkhu is monk, bhikkhuni for the nuns, it's said that that tradition, that the lineage was broken and so there, there aren't full nuns, full bhikkhunis anymore. The, the nuns there can only take eight or possibly ten precepts. The extra precepts would mean not handling money, but it's almost impossible for them to, to actually not handle money. And there is uh, some indication that, that this might be changing. There's a movement to reinstate the bhikkhuni um, tradition there, and uh, there are hopeful signs, but it's, it run, it's running against a deeply entrenched tradition that's uh, hard, to, hard to change. But um, there seems to be some real movement and some real support for that. It's mostly in Sri Lanka to date. <clears throat> I have some friends, a couple of friends who are Westerners who've been living as nuns now for a, quite a while. Uh, I know some of you know Da Aryanyani, she's Swiss-born. And she's been in robes for at least 12, it might be getting closer to 15 years now. And um, it's just, I don't know, most of that time in Burma, she's learned to, she speaks Burmese fluently now and she's teaching and it's such a, an incredible commitment, I think, to choose that life. I have another friend who's an American born, who's been in robes at least 15 years now. And <clears throat> she recently finished her, uh, <coughs> excuse me, her Dhammacharya, um, studies, which is this incredible course of study. It requires memorizing vast amounts of sutta, learning Pali, and she had to learn enough Burmese to even do it. It's like a, I don't know, a master's or a PhD or something. It's the highest credentialing you can get in, in study. And uh, most people have to retake the exams more than once because they're almost impossible to actually pass. And she may, be, she may be the first, or certainly she's one of the first Western nuns to complete this study. And I, I see her every time I go over there, and it's, 
it's just so inspiring the level of commitment which you know my own path doesn't come anywhere close to that so I'm going to tell some stories and read some poems from the Terigata this evening. And the first one is uh, the story of Mahapajapati Gotami, who was the founder of the nun's order, of the Bhikkhuni Sangha. And the story begins uh, really near the time of the Buddha's birth. And the Buddha's mother was named Maya, and her sister was Pajapati. And they were born into the Kolian clan in the town of Devadaha in northeast India. It's probably located in southern Nepal, modern-day southern Nepal, near the Himalayan foothills. And when they grew up, they were both married to the king of the Sakyas, Sudodana, And they moved to Kapilavatu, which is the capital of the Sakyans. And after a time, Maya became pregnant, and it was customary at that time for people, women, to go to their parents' homes to give birth, and so she wanted to do this. And when the time came, she set off for Devadaha with her retinue. And it said that en route, she stopped at the, they stopped at the Lumbini Garden to rest and to admire the blossoming trees there. And she reached up uh, to pick a branch of a flowering rose apple tree and uh, her labor began. She felt the initial labor pains begin, and uh, she gave birth to the, a baby boy there under the tree there in Lumbini. And uh, this is an, a little aside. Um, a couple of centuries after that, or more than that, the Emperor Ashoka, who kind of united most of India under Buddhism, uh, put a pillar up there. Uh, he used to put these commemorative pillars at different places around in India. And uh, it's still there. Um, and there are some, some of you may have been, there are various ruins and things from those early times. It's quite amazing to see these places that, where these people lived. So the, the site is, seems to be well marked there in Lumbini. It's the modern day town of Lumbini is there. So when the king, Sudodana heard the news of, of the birth of his son, he was really happy. And it said that he called a, a famous seer, uh, someone who could see into the future, named Asita. And uh, I guess it was customary to do that. And this man predicted that if the boy stayed at home, he would become a, a great secular ruler. And if he left home, he would become a great religious teacher. And the baby was named Siddhartha, which means one who accomplishes his aim. So seven days after she gave birth, Maya died quite suddenly, maybe from the, the difficulties of childbirth. It's not recorded why, but she died quite suddenly. And so Pajapati, who was the baby's aunt, took him, and she raised him as her own first child. And later she had two of her own children. Sundari Nanda was a boy and uh, later Sundari Nanda, who was a girl. So I'm not going to go into the Buddha's early life. That's for someone else. But uh, he left home at 29 to start his spiritual quest. And he didn't return back to his home during that whole six-year period of his spiritual quest, which um, culminated with his enlightenment under the Bodhi tree in what's now called Bodhgaya. 
But it, it's said in the suttas that he, he did return home sometime during the year following his enlightenment at his father's request. His father sent a messenger to where he was staying in Rajagaha, which is called Rajgir now in India. And it was sometime after the first rains period, which is uh, monks and nuns count their, their seniority, their time, they count time in terms of rains periods. It's the rainy period of the monsoon. So when he, he did go home that first time and was not, he was rather met with a cool reception. Uh, his wife didn't greet him, but she sent their son to meet him. But apparently his foster mother, Pajapati, did welcome him and so did the king. And Pajapati was probably at this time in her late 50s or maybe even early 60s. She was, had become an elder there in the, in the town. And it's said that after hearing the Buddha preach that the king uh, attained to the third stage of awakening and uh, Pajapati became a stream enterer. It was a, a good deal if you could hear the Buddha speak. Uh, so at this time, by, by this time she was known as Maha Pajapati. Gotami is the family name. Maha means great. So this was a, a sign of her um, age and, and because she was the the wife of the king, and so she had this honorific title. And a lot of women came to her for her support advice. She was wise and, and kind. And uh, apparently more and more women came because there was a war and a lot of men died. And so there were women who were left widowed, which was a very big deal in that culture. And, and also uh, men were leaving to become monks, <laughs> joining the Buddha. So women were left alone because of that as well. So she had uh, a lot of um, status and uh, acclaim in the town. And the Buddha left and then he visited again uh, sometime after the fifth rains. I'm not sure if he went in between, but at that time when he went back, uh, Mahapajapati decided to ask his permission for women to um, go forth and become homeless uh, disciples of his, which was a a radical idea in that culture at that time. So she approached the Buddha. He was staying among the Sakyans in Nigroda's Park, which I think was also known as the Banyan Monastery or one of the Banyan Monasteries. And she greeted him and she stood at a respectful distance and she said, it would be good, Lord, if women could be allowed to renounce their homes and enter into the homeless life under the Dhamma and discipline of the Tathagata. And the Buddha replied, enough, Gotami. Don't set your heart on women being allowed to do this. And so as is always the case, she asked a second and a third time, <laughs> made the same request, and, he received, and she received the same reply each time. So she finally bowed to him and left in tears, thinking that he would not sanction her request. So following this, sometime after this, the Buddha left for Vesali, another place where he tended to spend a lot of time. It's uh, near modern day Patna in India, if any of you know that area. And uh, so she, Mahapajapati, cut off her hair and she put on saffron robes. She was pretty determined. And followed by a large group of the Sakyan women who were her, her close friends and supporters, they set off for Vesali. And they arrived um, where the Buddha was staying. He was staying in a 
place called the Kutagara Hall in the Great Grove. And, you know, they walked everywhere. This is, I've been to these places. It's, it's a long way to walk. It would have been, I don't know, most of a week's journey at least on foot. So she arrived and her feet are swollen and she's covered in dust from the road. She stood outside the porch of the hall weeping. And seeing her standing there, Ananda approached. And he said, Gotami, why are you standing outside the porch crying? It's always the kind Ananda is checking on people. And she says, because Ananda, the Blessed One does not allow women to renounce their homes and enter into the homeless life under the teaching and discipline of the Tathagata. So Ananda goes into the Buddha and pays respects and sits down to one side. And he says, Pajapati is standing outside under the entrance porch with swollen feet, covered in dust and crying because you do not permit women to renounce their homes and enter into the homeless life. It would be good, Lord, if women were allowed to do this. And the Buddha said, enough, Ananda. (laughs) Don't set your heart on women being allowed to do this. And again, the second and third time, and again, the same reply. So Ananda thought, the Blessed One does not give his permission. Let me try asking on other grounds. (laughs) So he says, are women able, Lord, when they have entered into homelessness, to realize the fruits of stream entry, once returning, non-returning, and arahantship? So these are the four classical stages of awakening, of enlightenment. Yes, Ananda, they are able. If women are able to realize perfection, and since Pajapati was of great service to you, she was your aunt, nurse, foster mother. When your mother died, she even suckled you at her own breast. It would be good if women could be allowed to enter into homelessness. (laughs) So at this, the Buddha gave his consent. He may have realized that Pajapati was not going to take no for an answer. So then she asked the Buddha, Pajapati asked the Buddha what to do about the group of Sakyan women who had come with her. And he said that those who wished to do so should be ordained as bhikkhunis. And so this was how the nun's order was established. And after her ordination, Pajapati was given a, a meditation subject. And as they always do, she realized full awakening in a fairly short time. And it said that she lived to the ripe age of 120. People lived a long time then. And uh, I'll read her poem. Her poem speaks uh, in praise of the Buddha to quite a lot of it, but it also refers to wanderings in, in lifetimes in samsara and recounts her own realization and the ending of this cycle of rebirth. This is Pajapati's poem. Homage to you, Buddha, best of all creatures, who set me and many others free from pain. All suffering is understood. The cause, the craving is dried up. The noble eightfold way unfolds. I have reached the state where everything stops. I have been mother, son, father, brother, grandmother, Knowing nothing of the truth, I journeyed on. But I have seen the Blessed One. This is my last body, and I will not go from birth to birth again. Look at all the disciples together, their energy, their sincere effort. This is homage to the Buddhas, 
Maya gave birth to Gotama for the sake of us all. She has driven back the pain of the sick and the dying. There are a number of poems in this collection, in the Terigata, by some of the nuns who were followers of Pajapati's, probably part of that group that walked with her to Vesali. And uh, I want to read one of them. It's by uh, a woman named Vadesi. And she had been uh, Pajapati's nurse and her attendant when she was living as the queen. This is Vadesi's poem. It was 25 years since I left home and I hadn't had a moment's peace. Uneasy at heart, steeped in longing for pleasure, I held out my arms and cried out as I entered the monastery. I went up to a nun I thought I could trust. She taught me the Dhamma, the elements of body and mind, the nature of perception, and earth, water, fire, and wind. I heard her words and sat down beside her. Now I have entered the six realms of sacred knowledge. I know I have lived before. The eye of heaven is pure, and I know the minds of others. I have great magic powers and have annihilated all the obsessions of the mind. The Buddha's teaching has been done. You know, we get discouraged if we have an unpleasant sitting, but she went 25 years without a moment's peace. Some real dedication there. And I think I love this description of her practice. You know, she talks about the elements of body and mind, the nature of perception, and the great elements of earth, water, fire, and wind, these same kinds of things that we're hearing about and practicing here. The next story I want to tell is that of Patachara. And by all accounts, she was quite a powerful personality in the community and and before then. She eventually became a highly respected teacher and had a lot of followers. A lot of the poems praise her by her followers that that are in the collection. She was born into a banker's family in Savati. And when she was grown, her parents arranged a marriage to a man of similar social standing as was customary. But she had other ideas, and she ran away with a servant from the family's household servant who had, was her lover. And they married, and after a time when she became pregnant, she wanted to go home to have birth at her family home. And her, her husband was not so inclined, <laughs> he, uh, for good reason. He might not have been so welcome uh, running off with the, the daughter. So he he kept putting it off. And so she just, one day when he wasn't there, she went off on her own. So he followed her and he overtook her halfway to Savati. And at that time, when when he caught up with her, her labor came on. And so she gave birth there uh, along the way safely. And after she was strong enough, they returned home together. And when she became pregnant a second time, some, some years 
couple years later, she again wanted to go home. And again, the husband was reluctant and delayed, put her off. So she took their first child, who was a toddler, I imagine, and set out on her own. And again, he followed her when he discovered and caught up. And again, her labor came on. Something about that, maybe being on the road. But this time, a, a great storm rose up. And uh, they needed some kind of shelter because they were going to have to stay there while she was uh, giving birth. So her husband went into the nearby forest and he was cutting some stakes and poles and grass to build a, a simple shelter for them so they could be out of the storm. And he was bitten by a poisonous snake and he, he died there while he was in the forest. So Patachara is by the side of the road and she's alone. She thinks she's been abandoned. It's the nighttime comes and so she 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 gives birth and then she shelters her children with her own body from the storm overnight. And then in the morning she finds her husband's body. So she's pretty upset, paralyzed with grief, and she stayed there for the rest of that day and another night, not really knowing what to do. And then when the next day came, she decided that she might go to her parents' house she had lost her husband and she continued on to Savati. And she came to the Achiravati River, which was swollen with floodwaters from this big storm. And the usual crossing the ford was, was waist deep with a very strong current. And she wasn't strong enough to carry both of the kids across. So she uh, took the newborn baby and carried that baby across, carried him across, and she made a bed of leaves on the far side and laid the baby down. And then she set off to cross back and get her older child. And she didn't want to leave the newborn, obviously, and she kept looking back as she crossed the river again and again. And when she was about halfway across, this big eagle swooped down and it seized the newborn and started to carry him off. And she started screaming and the eagle ignored her screams, but then the older child thought that she was calling to him. So he ran to the side of the riverbank and fell in and was swept away and drowned in the river. So she was in complete despair, as you would imagine, and all she could think of to do was to continue her journey to her parents' house. So as she's approaching the town of Savati, she met a man and asked him if he knew of her parents. And he said, don't ask me about them. Ask me about anything else. Well, we know bad news is coming. And she says, well, there's nothing else I care about. And he said, you saw how much it has been raining. Your family's house collapsed. It fell on them. And you can see the smoke where they're all burning on one funeral pyre, banker, wife, and son. So she loses her mind with this grief. And she begins wandering around in circles and weeping and wailing. And her clothing became ragged and eventually fell off. And the townspeople drove her away with sticks and rubbish as a crazy person. And at this time, the Buddha was staying in the Jetavana Park outside the, the city. It's still there. You can see the old city walls there and where the park is. It's quite lovely. Anattapindakas Park. And so Patachara came wandering up where the Buddha was, and he was teaching a group of monks and lay disciples. 
and they wanted to chase her away. Um, but he said no. He had a sense that she would be able to hear and understand the teaching. So he told his disciples to allow her to approach. And when she drew near, he said, Sister, recover your presence of mind. And at this, she did recover her sanity. And a kindly man who was there gave her a cloak to wear. And the Buddha listened with kindness and she recounted her horrible story. And, and the Buddha said, Patachara, it is not only now that you have met with disaster and trouble. In your many lives, you have shed more tears for the dead than there is water in all the four oceans. And then he continued to teach her and her grief subsided. And by the end of his discourse, she had realized stream entry. And she decided to ordain as a join the nuns community. And she became known, she had a reputation for being foremost in the study and understanding of the, the nuns rules of the nuns vinaya. So I'll read her poem now. It recounts her struggle in practice and it describes the, the actual moment of her realization in a, a beautiful and very precise kind of way we hear in some of these poems. This is Patachara's poem. When they plow their fields and sow seeds in the earth, when they care for their wives and children, young Brahmins find riches. But I've done everything right and followed the rule of my teacher. I'm not lazy or proud. Why haven't I found peace? Bathing my feet, I watched the bathwater spill down the slope. I concentrated my mind the way you train a good horse. Then I took a lamp and went into my cell and checked the bed and sat down on it. I took a needle and pushed the wick down. When the lamp went out, my mind was freed. We see this kind of sequence in some of these accounts of people's practice where there's this kind of period of really intense effort and concentration and then some relaxation from that effort and sometimes a kind of catalyst, like in this case, the lamp going out that seemed to spark her breakthrough. I love that kind of simple description of that precise moment. And I think her story, you know, it seems kind of mythical and out, a little too outrageous maybe in all the tragedy, but then I think of Deepama. People have talked about Deepama and you know, she lost her husband and two of her children and was paralyzed with grief, didn't leave her bed for years. And so it's a kind of modern day version of the same kind of situation of someone going through something really tragic and it being the catalyst for their awakening eventually. So <clears throat> the next story and poem is that of Kisa Gotami. It's also kind of sad, sorry. <laughs> but it's a famous one and it's got some good stuff in it, so I didn't want to leave it out. I know some of you will have heard this, you'll recognize it. Kisa Gotami was also born in Savati 
a lot of things in the suttas took place there. And the Buddha spent, I think he spent the most number of rains periods there in Savati. And the name, her name Kisa means thin. And she was probably thin because she was very poor. Although she was a cousin to the Buddha in the same family, her mother's brother was the king, Suddhodana, but she was a poor cousin, had a good name, but not a lot of wealth. And so when she was grown, she was married to the son of a well-to-do merchant and she moved in with his family. But as a young bride, as a new wife, she was treated badly with some contempt by her in-laws, which happened sometimes with new brides. But then she gave birth to a son. And so she was given an honorable place and treated much, much better at that point. And so partly as a result of that, she was especially attached to her little son, perhaps a bit beyond the usual love of a mother for her child, because he was so directly connected to her acceptance into the family and to her her happiness in marriage. But when her son was just a toddler, he became ill one day and, and ill one day and he died. And the, this tragedy was just too much for her. She feared that she would be rejected by her husband and his family and that he might even leave her or kick her out and marry someone else. And so she, she refused to accept that the child was actually dead. She convinced herself that he was just sick and that he might recover, that he would recover if she could only find the right medicine. So she took her dead child in her arms and she carried him from house to house through the town, begging for help. And even people told her, you know, your baby is, your child is dead. There's no medicine that we can can help. But she wasn't able to see the truth. So she just would go on to the next house and ask there, so finally, a kindly old man sent her to see the Buddha who was staying again in the Jetavana park outside the town. So she ran to the Buddha and asking him for medicine to cure her child. And the Buddha told her, yes, there is a medicine. I know of a medicine, but you must bring it yourself. So he told her to go and bring a white mustard seed from any house where no one had died in the town. And so hearing this, she rushed off thinking that if she brought one of these seeds to this enlightened sage, he could provide a miraculous cure for her child. So again, she went from house to house and at each one asking for a white mustard seed, which was a common enough spice in that time. And so many people were able to provide one. But each time when she asked if anyone had died there, the answer was always yes. There wasn't a single household where no one had died. The dead, she was told, are more numerous than the living. So finally, the truth struck home and she came to her senses. And she realized that death is common to all beings. So she carried her son's lifeless body, gently carried it to the cemetery and buried it there. And she returned to the Buddha and he asked if she had gotten a mustard seed. And she said, done, venerable sir, is the business of the mustard seeds. So then she, as seems to always be the case, requested permission to join the nun Sangha and she was ordained. And she became known especially for her asceticism. 
And over time, her practice deepened, and she eventually realized full awakening. And her poem, part of it, at least part, is presented as a kind of dialogue between herself and Patachara, who was probably her teacher. It's kind of long. I'm going to read just a portion of this one. So the first voice is Patachara's. On a journey near to childbirth, I found my husband dead and gave birth on the road. I hadn't reached my family's home. I lost both sons and my husband dead on the road. Then mother, father, brother, burning on one pyre. And this next stanza seems to be the Buddha's voice. Miserable woman, your family's destroyed. This pain can't be measured, and your tears have been falling for thousands of lives. And again, Patachara's voice. I have seen the jackals eating the flesh of my sons in the cemetery. My family destroyed, my husband dead. Despised by everyone, I found what does not die. Kisa Gotami. I have practiced the great eightfold way straight to the undying. I have come to the great peace. I have looked into the mirror of the Dhamma. The arrow is out and I have put my burden down. What had to be done has been done. Sister Kisagotami with a free mind has said this. The next story is Mitakali. And her story is particularly interesting because she apparently was living as a wandering ascetic at the time she met the Buddha. And uh, it's decided to become a nun. And this was not unheard of, but it was rare for women to live in this way. But there are others in the, in the collection who, who were wandering ascetics much as the Buddha was before his, uh, when he was practicing before his enlightenment. It's not clear who her teachers were, what kind of practices she was doing. But she was inspired to ordain after hearing the Buddha uh, preach the Satipatthana Sutta, which is the discourse on the foundations of mindfulness. It's one of the most famous teachings. It's the real uh, core meditation instructions that we're practicing here in the Satipatthana Sutta. And this, uh, this event, the preaching of the Satipatthana Sutta took place in a market town of Kamasadhamma in the country of the Kurus, which is quite far in the West. If you look on a map, it's actually not far from modern day Delhi. So it would have been in the far Western places that the Buddha ever visited in his teaching career. And this, somehow it's, it's known that Mitakali seemed to have had a, she was re, had a reputation for being kind of cross and difficult, self-centered, and her, as a wandering ascetic, she was not pleased easily. But apparently she changed her ways after hearing the Buddha. <laughs> uh, and when she joined the community of nuns, she was really known for her energy and diligence and practice. 
And as her practice deepened, she too became a fully awakened, realized the fruits of arahantship. Her poem is similar to Patachara's. Um, it has a very precise description of the moment of her awakening. And like Patachara, Mitakali's uh, awakening came as the result of a deep insight into impermanence, which we can is in the language of the poem. This is Mita Kali's poem. Although I left home for no home and wandered full of faith, I was still greedy for possessions and praise. I lost my way and my passions used me and I forgot the real point of my wandering life. Then as I sat in my little cell, there was only terror. I thought, this is the wrong way. A fever of longing controls me. Life is short. Age and sickness gnaw away. I have no time for carelessness before this body breaks. And as I watched the elements of mind and body rise and fall away, I saw them as they really are. I stood up. My mind was completely free. The Buddha's teaching has been done. one here in case I had time, seem to. So this is the story of Bada Kundalakesa. And she was born to a wealthy family in Rajagaha, which is called Rajgir now in India. It's not so far from Bodhgaya. You can still see the ancient city wall. It's amazing to go to these places and you can see these things that date from the time when the Buddha was there and the vulture peak, the, the sort of area where the, the Grita Kuda peak, where he had a hut. Um, you can see the, the base of that. There's a groove where the chariot wheels were worn in a rock <laughs> outside Rajgir. She was born there, Rajagaha. It's where the Buddha spent the first rainy season. And uh, she had a very passionate nature as a girl, and her parents really watched her very closely as she grew to womanhood, because they were worried what might come of it. And one day she was gazing out her window, and she caught sight of a robber who was being led off to execution. And he was a handsome young man of some stature who had become a thief. And she saw, as soon as she saw him, she fell in love. So she implored her father. She was the only child, and so I think she kind of had him a little bit around her finger. <laughs> so she implored him to obtain her release, to obtain the, the thief's release. And so against his better judgment, her father bribed the guards and had them bring this, this guy to the house, to the family house. And so <laughs> the guards did this. They brought this guy, and the merchant allowed them to marry because he was he thought well maybe this young man's heart will have a change of heart when he has this change of good fortune so 
he was a hopeful father. And uh, so soon after the wedding, this uh, former robber became clear that he was still a robber at heart. Uh, <laughs> so he became obsessed with the idea of getting a hold of his wife's jewelry. His thieving ways prevailed in his heart. So he made up a story that he had promised a certain mountain deity that he would make a, an offering if his life was spared as he was being led to his execution. So he convinced Bada to dress up in all her finery and well wear all her jewelry and to go with him up to this mountain deity's place of his home. So they climb up into the mountains and they come to the top of this precipice, which was called Robber's Cliff. That's <laughs> uh, where thieves were cast off. Uh, thieves were pushed off there for their execution. Bada didn't know about this. And so when they arrived at the cliff, the robber demanded her jewelry and, and you know, th- told her he was going to throw her over the cliff. And so she saw only one way out of this. She was resourceful, so she, she implored him, let me give you one final embrace. <laughs> and of course, I guess he was kind of uh, a little arrogant, so he thought, oh, sure. So she, while embracing him, she pushed him over the cliff. <laughs> so even though this was a good move, she uh, really felt like she couldn't face her family after this. So she ran off and she entered the order of the Svetambara Jains. The Jain religion was had been in India for quite a while already before the time of the Buddha. It's an ancient tradition that still exists in India today. And uh, they were one of the first sects to establish, also establish an order of nuns. So they had nuns. And when she uh, came there, they said, well, what level of renunciation do you want to undertake? And she said she wanted to commit to the severest form of asceticism that they offered. So one of the, apparently, this is bad, (laughs) apparently one of the austerities of her initiation is that they tore out her hair by the roots. (laughs) kind of severe. We're not going to be doing any of that here. (laughs) Um, But it grew back in and it was really curly. Apparently her name, the name that she was given, Kundalakesa, Bada Kundalakesa. Apparently the Kundalakesa means curly hair. So after a while she mastered all of the teachings and practices there and she was dissatisfied. She left that order. Kind of like the Buddha with his first teachers, it wasn't really getting to the point. So she left and she started wandering around, searching out the wisest teachers around that she could find. And she was really brilliant and good uh, student. And so she really got a really great training in the philosophies and a really good knowledge of the texts of the time. And she became especially skilled in the art of religious debate. So after that, whenever she would come to a new town, I guess this was a tradition, but she would make a pile of sand and she'd stick a rose apple branch of a rose apple tree in it. And this was her signal that she was ready to debate any <laughs> any comers. And so anyone who wanted to debate with her would, would knock over the stick and that was the signal that <clears throat> there would be a debate. So um, she would do this and every she did it for years and she always won. She never met her match. So one day she comes to Savati and she put up her sand pile and stuck in her rose apple branch. 
as she usually would. And it's said that at that time that Venerable Sariputta, who was one of the Buddha's two chief disciples, was living there in Savati. And he saw the branch. So he told some children to knock it down. And thus the debate was established. So Bada put her questions first. And apparently Sariputta answered them all with ease until she had no more questions to ask. And then he asked his first question, kind of abstruse. He said, one, what is that? And Bada was unsure what he might mean by this. You know, did one, did this refer to God or Brahma or the infinite? So I thought surely nothing so obvious as that. In one place I read, it's, it said that the answer is that it's nutriment. Since all beings rely on food for sustenance, I'm not sure that's exactly what he meant, but it's one possibility. So admitting defeat, Bada asked Sariputta for the answer. And instead of answering, he sent her to the Buddha. And he saw how deep her, real, her understanding was. And uh, he knew that she would be able to understand the teachings. So he gave her instruction and, and discourse. And she realized full awakening, hearing him teach the first time. Be nice, huh? So um, at her request to become a nun, the Buddha actually ordained her by saying, Kam Bada. And in the early days when he would ordain monks, he would say, Ehi Bhikkhu, Kam Bhikkhu. And there was no formal elaborate ceremony as there is these days. And she's, um, actually, this is the only recorded case uh, other than, than when he started the, the nun's order with Pajapati, where he, he ordained a nun in this way. And he considered, the Buddha considered Bada to be foremost in terms of the speed with which she became enlightened. And apparently, even after she joined the nun's community, she continued to wander. She was a wandering nun. And that comes out in her poem. So this is Bada's poem. I cut my hair and wore the dust, and I wandered in my one robe, finding fault while there, where there was none, and finding no fault where there was. Then I came from my rest one day at Vulture Peak and saw the pure Buddha with his monks. I bent my knee, paid homage, pressed my palms together. We were face to face. Come, Bada, he said. That was my ordination. I have wandered throughout Anga and Magadha, Bhaji, Kasi, and Kosala. Fifty-five years with no debt, I have enjoyed the alms of these kingdoms. A wise lay follower gained a lot of merit. He gave a rope to Bada, who is free from all bonds. So I'm going to end the talk this evening with a poem by a nun named Sukha. I picked it because I like the poem. And there's this kind of a charming story that goes with it. Sukha was born into a wealthy family in Rajagaha. 
And her name means bright or lustrous or shining. It's different from the word sukha that means happy or contented. It's a different spelling, sukha. And one day when she was still a young girl, she heard the Buddha teaching uh, and she became a lay disciple of his while she was a pretty young girl. He was living in the bamboo grove, the, the squirrel sanctuary there. It's still there and it has bamboo and squirrels in it. If you visit, it's actually a really lovely park there outside Rajgir. So she became a lay disciple as a child. And then when she was old enough, she ordained as a nun. She was ordained by a nun named Damadina. I didn't tell Damadina's story, but she was famous for her eloquence as a speaker. And uh, she had a large following of disciples. And Sukha practiced diligently and realized Nibbana in in a really pretty short time. And as she grew up and matured, she also became a very skilled and inspiring speaker. Eventually, she was considered to be her teacher's equal, the equal of Dhammadina. And she also had a large following of nuns uh, herself as she grew older. So one day, she and her companions returned home from their alms round in Rajagaha. And Sukha began to teach the Dhamma. And it seems that she spoke so beautifully that her listeners became quite enchanted. And apparently there was a tree that was growing at the edge of the gathering place that was so inspired that that it uprooted itself and went striding through the streets of the town, (laughs) praising her eloquence and and reciting this poem. This hasn't happened to me uh, yet. I don't know if any of the other teachers have had trees going striding about after they've given a talk. It's it's a nice image. So this is uh, Sukha's poem. Actually, this is the poem. I don't know if it's hers or the trees, but it's either hers or the poem the tree made up about her. Excuse me. What has happened to these people in Rajagaha? They are like drunks. They don't listen to Sukha preaching, the Buddha's teaching. But the wise drink her words as travelers drink rain and never tire of their sweetness. Sukha, you are light because of your bright mind. Concentrated, free of desire, you have conquered Mara and his forces. Bear this body, it is your last. I love that line. The wise drink her words as travelers drink rain and never tire of their sweetness. So may all beings drink of the good Dhamma and never tire of its sweetness. So let's sit for a few minutes and we'll let the words roll away. And then I'll ring the bell.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.